You create social conditions to where people who use drugs cannot function socially, and you define a disorder purely on the basis of social functioning. There's a circular reasoning involved there that, um, you know, to where prohibitionists and folks who are uh, jingoistic or discriminatory or have hatred towards people for what they put in their bodies have a leg to stand on. And providing a place for people to be open about who they are and honest about who they are and create a climate of safety and support is invaluable for all human beings. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. planet is in crisis, plagued by a pandemic and devastating climate change. If you weren't aware, sorry to break the news to you. Because of an increase in wildfires, floods, hurricanes, freak storms, and outbreaks of disease, we're seeing more and more people isolated, left to fend for themselves as the cracks in public infrastructure only seem to widen. To use one prominent example, the state of Texas. It has been slapped with recurrent cataclysms and catastrophes of late, most recently the February winter storm that crushed the power grid, leading to food and water shortages, which left at least 111 people dead. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Whenever ecological disaster strikes, we at this program always wonder about what happens to people who use drugs. Are dealers still on the corner? Can people still access their medications via pharmacies or otherwise? What happens if you overdose or need medical care? Today, we're going to be talking with Aaron Ferguson, who was, if you are a longtime listener, you may recognize that name. He was a co-producer on the show for about 10 to 20 episodes. Uh, I forget how we met exactly. Uh, Aaron can fill us in on that. But uh, Aaron is based in Austin, Texas. He does some excellent harm reduction work. Um, his day job is an outreach provider, providing um, methadone and buprenorphine. Uh, and he's also on the leadership team of the National Drug Users Union, Aaron, welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me, Troy. It's great to be back. Also with us today is Zachary Siegel, co-host of Narcotica, uh, based in Chicago. How's it going, Zach? Hey, it's going good. Good to be here. Uh, Aaron, so um, we were supposed to talk about a year ago. We really wanted to you know, hear about the, the interesting work you're doing in Texas and, and what the re- environment is really like there for harm reduction. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, misconception about how Texas is, but also, you know, it's also one of the strictest states when it comes to drug policy. Um, So, but then, you know, the COVID pandemic happened and everything got kind of pushed back. And then, uh, you know, this horrible, you know, winter storm struck Texas. So basically, I guess, you know, we just want to start off with asking how you're doing, what's the vibe like in Texas and, and maybe a little bit about the work you do. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for asking, man. Um, you know, it's, it's been great to hear the concern from folks in other states. Um, you know, it's interesting living in Texas. I moved here from the Midwest, but I'm originally from California and it's quite a different culture. It's a bit of a culture shock um, that I don't know if I'll ever get over, but there's a lot of work to be done here um, in the harm reduction front. So, you know, that can be rewarding. Uh, there's a lot of room for change. Um, and so yeah, it's been very busy. I think, I feel like I've maybe grown about 10 years since we last saw each other a year ago. And maybe we all kind of feel like 10 years has passed in the span of a year with all the different crazy things that have happened. I mean, we thought that, um, 
even before COVID had happened, we thought things were pretty nuts with the presidential administration, with the way things were going with um, drug user rights and the war on drugs. And, and then all this stuff happened, um, you know, and so COVID has hit Texas pretty hard. Um, it was somewhat of a delayed effect. You, there's not as many densely populated urban areas here, um, but it did, once again, you know, viruses don't really care um, about any of that. They're gonna spread eventually um, from one person to the next. And public officials here have not taken a very progressive approach to trying to prevent transmission of the virus and have been very sort of lax and leaning on the side of uh, supporting economics rather than science, um, if you could say that those are um, disparate. But, you know, so it's been this sort of climate of let's get back to work, Texas. And it's even to the point now where, as you probably know, folks are ceasing to don their masks. Um, you know, as the result of a statement from the governor here that they're no longer needed. And so these are things that have really crippled the healthcare system here. And, um, and then on top of all that, we had this recent blackout uh, that was just sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And, and as, you, as you say, uh, there's an effect on people who use drugs that is always an order of magnitude higher than just the average citizen experiences when something like this happens. So it has been a very challenging uh, year in particular for the work that I do here and just the work um, of harm reduction in general for people who have been affected by the pandemic. Yeah, like the, the images and the stories coming out of Texas were just so scary and you know, this one story sticks with me that a mom and her daughter died of carbon monoxide poisoning because they were in their garage with their car running, trying to stay warm. You know, like, that's just, at a basic human level, atrocious. And, yeah, what's it like? What, what were those early days like when, when the storm hit? You know, where were you and, and what was going on? So I was, I was quite lucky through the process. I mean, we did lose power. It, it, was, it was really strange how disproportionate the situation was um, for different folks. You know, you had people who were without power for four or five days, um, also did not have gas appliances in their house. And so when the water went out, they're without power and water in the coldest storm in 50 years in Texas. Um, you know, for myself, it started off as well. The power went out while we were asleep and my wife and I woke up and said, oh, okay, you know, maybe it'll come back on here in a minute. We had actually been expecting some outage because we knew that there was going to be an ice storm and we knew that um, power lines tend to be affected by that or they're down trees that can cut the power out. Um, but we didn't certainly did not expect to be without power for three days and didn't expect to lose the ability to use our water. And those are all things that you just kind of take for granted until they're gone. Um, you know, Texas has not taken the necessary precautions to prevent events like this because of, well, for one thing, they're quite rare. Uh, for another thing, it's costly to winterize the systems here and Texas does not participate in the in the wide the wider grid 
so it doesn't contribute to the wider grid. It's like an electricity island. Um, and part of the reason for that, I think, is so that winterization would not be required uh, due to the cost prohibitive nature of it. And banking on the fact that things like this wouldn't happen very often. Well, when they do, the results are disastrous. Um, you know, so we can bank on the unlikelihood of a disaster, but when it, it, they inevitably happen, they become all that more devastating. And that's really what we saw here. Yeah, I, I, it, it was sort of fascinating to hear about like the Texas's grid and the politics of energy and sort of obviously the anti-regulatory kind of fervor among ener the, the energy kind of industry in Texas, how they don't want to be regulated. They don't want to be part of the, the national grid. They, they want to kind of just do like a brute force economics kind of system where if there's a high demand for energy, it costs people more. And I, you know, again, like these stories coming out of Texas about some, some guy owing like $16,000 to pay his energy bill because, you know, his lights were on and, and, you know, just like, and, and that kind of, I think feeds into the broader population's perspective of Texas as like this kind of either uh, regressive backwater full of, you know, chuds and rubes who are all Trump supporters and all this. And, and, and obviously Texas is, has elements of that but it's also much more than that right like what uh what what's it like kind of trying to do harm reduction in texas given the political climate there so i'm lucky enough to live in austin and there's a saying that the problem with austin is that it's surrounded by texas um it, you know and, and obviously that's that's a sort of a left-leaning statement uh but it's very different just traveling a little ways outside of town um, you know, and it is surrounded by Texas, which is predominantly Republican, predominantly, um, you know, in favor of small government. And to me, that's sort of the mindset that has created the predicament that we were in um, with the power. And there were some open sentiments from one particular mayor in the state here that I think actually reflected the general beliefs of most politicians here that although they wouldn't openly say it, which is to the effect of, well, the government is not responsible to do shit for you. It's up to you if something goes wrong to go out and solve it yourself. Didn't did, did that guy resign? He resigned after saying that, right? Like the backlash was so fierce. To me, he spoke openly what a lot of folks actually thought, you know, and he wasn't an outlier in that respect, at least in from, from my own views in terms of political bent here in the state. And you know, not a lot changed in in the last election. Um, it's a very, very strong um, contingent here, uh, you know, on the right side of things. Um, and so Austin is very different from most of the states. So, I, you know, I, I may not have the best representation living in this area. Uh, I do live a little ways outside north of Austin, and you can even see quite a drastic change just moving into the suburbs, um, you know, between people's mentality about different things. Um, you see more trucks, you know, and you see more uh, sort of off the gridder types. Doing harm reduction work here is particularly challenging in general because um, the healthcare system as it stands is highly privatized. 
And there's a general sentiment that healthcare ought not to be a public good. And, and so we have the highest rate of uninsured in the country. Um, Medicaid did not expand here. And so for the work that I do, it's particularly challenging trying to get treatments uh, that stand to save folks' lives who are in danger of opioid poisoning, um, trying to get people treated you know, and get their treatment paid for is a huge challenge in the absence of Medicaid coverage. Uh, block grants cover the majority of it, and those are all competitive. Uh, they all have limits on them. They all have expiration dates, and they usually result in long wait lists for treatment. So just to give an example, for our services in the Austin area, there are probably between 40 and 60 people that are either struggling to pay for their methadone treatment or uh, some of whom are having to be tapered off because they can't afford, or they're being pressured to switch to another medication that's more covered under, under the state's um, opioid response funds. And so there's a general lack of bandwidth uh, for treatment services, and in my own opinion, due primarily to the lack of Medicaid expansion. But yes, it is very challenging to do harm reduction work here. Can you walk us through like a day in the life of your job? Like... You do a lot of driving around providing people with methadone and buprenorphine, correct? Um, so my, I'm a community worker, so I manage the sort of relationship, um, you know, mentality and view of the community about our services, building relationships with other providers in the community, going into jails and prisons and advocating for access to these medications, uh, supporting bills in the House and Senate that would increase access to care, um, getting involved with harm reduction agencies, drop-in centers, syringe service programs to try and increase access to treatment. Um, and so there's a wide range of folks that I sit in meetings with. You know, I'll go from meetings with groups of other drug users to being in meetings full of politicians uh, to being in meetings full of treatment service providers that have been assigned by politicians to figure out what's the best way to address the problem. So it can be um, pretty... Pretty interesting, the wide range of climates that I find myself in here. But the overarching goal of my day job is to increase access to these types of treatments that have been proven to save lives. And then the overarching goal in general for me um, is to fight for drug user rights um, and access to healthcare and, and um, a general increase in trust of science and an understanding of science and an application of scientific methodology to addiction treatment as a whole and just drugs as a whole. So it's kind of broad there, and I do a lot of different things, but uh, tried to elevate or pitch it. Yeah, I've always been impressed by the work you do, and, and that's why we were so you know privileged to have you working on this show with us. Um, and I, I really, growing up in Arizona, and I now live in San Bernardino County, uh, California, which is near Joshua Tree, uh, you know, I'm very familiar with that environment of people with trucks and off the gritters and don't trust the government and a lot of stigma against people that use drugs. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's very dominant. It seems like in Texas, but I, from the times that I've visited, it's not the only, um, you know, culture there. Um, what is, uh, what's the drug supply like in Texas? Uh, uh is there a lot of fentanyl in the heroin? Um, yeah. Is it like black tar or is there powder? Yeah. I, I was wondering that too. So, so it depends on where you go. For the for the most part, Texas is black tar. Um, it's close enough to Mexico, and that's been the modus operandi for Mexico. Um, but you know, 
concerning is the rise of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs showing up. And we have objective information about that. You know, the, the provider that I work for is required to drug screen folks once a month. So if you're on methadone, if you're an orphan, you have to submit drug screens. And so we've been testing for fentanyl um, for the last year and a half. And there's been a pretty steady upward trajectory of positive tests for fentanyl here. And that is quite concerning, um, you know, and then there are analogs popping up as well that obviously there's media panic about. Um, and it's really hard to say exactly what's indicated in a lot of the drug poisoning deaths because we don't have very accurate reporting measures. We don't have comprehensive drug checking services here um, to any extent. And, and so, but, you know, but through a combination of the drugs testing that we have to do as part of delivering these medications and then just anecdotal reports, fentanyl is on the rise um, and it is on the rise in conjunction with black tar heroin. Um, so many folks would think, you know, if you're using tar, you're safe, but that's not, that's not so. Yeah. It sounds like that's the trend sort of west of the Mississippi now where before fentanyl and the analogs were contained to the East Coast, and all the reports indicate that it, it's moving west and that in some instances it can be found in the tar, which, again, it's just like, yikes, it sounds bad. Uh, yeah. I personally uh, checked yeah. tar here that came up positive for fentanyl, so I can say it's not. It's definitely not a myth. You know, there, there's... Yeah. And it smelled the same, looked the same and everything, but it's got fentanyl in it. You know? Yeah, that's been um, my experience with people I know back in Arizona where uh, tar is, you know, way more prevalent. Um, and people thought, you know, oh, it's it's safer because it's tar. Um, but uh, yeah, it, fentanyl is appearing in the tar as well. I've heard one thing that, um, you know, people smoke tar a lot more than they inject it, I think. Um, and then when you're burning it, or melting it on the tray, um, it will turn different colors than normal. Like it'll turn like red. I don't know if that's true. If that's if that's the experience that you have encountered. Yeah, it's um, it's something to be vigilant about for sure. Here, all the more need for fentanyl test strips. Um, that's something that we've tried to make as widely available as we can to folks that come to the clinics. They go like candy. I mean, really, people have no other way of checking uh, <clears throat> than to use the fentanyl test strips. And um, Narcan, obviously, really trying hard to make that available. We've had some some really great system partners here that have helped us to make Narcan available, and have even been able to ship it to other parts of the country where we have clinics that where they're lacking it. Um, Texas invested quite a bit in Narcan, actually, um, I, and I think you know a lot of that was would have otherwise been applied to treatment, um, you know, but there hasn't been a comprehensive treatment infrastructure here. Um, you know, it, with the absence of the traditional 12-step abstinence-based treatments. Um, and so there's really not had, there wasn't an evidence-based treatment infrastructure to invest in. So a lot of the money went to Narcan, which is great, you know, but as you, as we've stated on the show here, there are a lot of points upstream uh, to intervene. Yeah. I want to go back to the storm and like people were obviously out there in treacherous conditions to try to access their their medicine right like is that what was going on yeah it was really really harrowing situation and um 
you know, we were prepared enough, you know, that the folks that I work with were prepared enough to, to get out in front of this to the point where we only had to close for a couple days. And one of our clinics only closed for a day. Um, and we wound up taking a lot of folks from the other clinics in town that had to close. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, just seeing, you know, nurses dosing in the dark with masks on, it, it's just, it, it's like a sort of iconic uh, you know, representation of dystopia or something, uh, you know, and, and then without power, we had a break in at one of our clinics and you know, Bella tried to get into the methadone safe. And, you know, obviously that thing's not going to be open no matter what. And, um, you know, wasn't wearing a mask or anything, probably just inebriated, but, you know, again, pretty concerning trying to report that to the police and then not hearing much back for days. And, um, you know, just, general sense that what we have in terms of a treatment infrastructure is so fragile um you know when we try to elicit participation and assistance from the local hospitals and er's why would we be met with anything other than the general um avoidance of treating people who use drugs even though there's a you know even though there's an emergency um so folks were being turned away saying you know we're not a rehab and, and we don't treat addicts here and and so again um you know last on the list uh for receiving any type of assistance are people who use drugs it's really unfortunate do you see things changing is i mean you know before the election everyone was talking about turn texas blue and all this other stuff like i i wonder if you notice attitudes are getting a little more progressive or or not maybe if, if you follow the current trajectory texas will actually be blue um Sooner than sooner than we would think, um, and it's been really surprising in the recent gubernatorial election. Um, some of the results there uh, had never happened in history, and maybe some of that is due to, you know, folks heading out from California, property taxes going up there. Um, you know, Elon Musk has moved here with some of his factories and things like that. Um, that lower taxes, you know, is, is or, and a lower cost of living is tending to attract folks this way. Um, but so uh, through a combination of that and just the fact that the younger generation is more left-leaning, I think that um, there will be some pretty drastic shifts here. Again, they tend to happen in a delayed effect as compared to a lot of other states. Do you find that like there's a, a kind of anti-intellectual, anti-expert, anti-science kind of politics and ideology wrapped up in a lot of the uh, kind of stuff we're talking about here, like like in, in West Virginia, for instance, like I, I'm diving into West Virginia for, for some work and, and there's this sense there that like when the CDC comes in to kind of like give them the finger, like, hey, we, we don't need to listen to you. Like, like we West Virginians take care of our own here. Like you're an outsider, like, you know, we don't need your reports. We don't need your studies. Like, like we got this. Do you get that sense in Texas too of a sort of like anti-elite, anti-outsider uh, kind of thinking? Absolutely. Uh, there's a general culture of uh, exceptionalism. Um, you know, and so there is. You have your patriotism, I guess you could call it, or you know, sort of belief in in the superiority of of um of Texans in general. 
But then within that, you have subsets of different epistemologies and folks that are really just, as you say, suspicious of the institution of science, suspicious against government, um, you know, have a general belief that the government ought to be small, uh, states ought to be able to do what they like, um, general belief that, you know, scientists are, or science even itself is just a big conspiracy. Uh, conspiracies are widespread everywhere. But in places where you don't have strong scientific education, um, which I think is, is lacking in general, but especially in Texas, and where you have literacy issues and you have issues in the education system, um, downstream of that, you see problems of epistemology where people don't really know where to look for information. And, and so you have you know, flat earth beliefs that are rampant, um, you know, sort of ontological confusion that's rampant. Um, you know, and religiosity is is so strong here that it's deeply wedded to government. And uh, there are probably more churches than gas stations. And so you have this this sort of climate of um, you know of of you know be belief without evidence, really in general, that that drives people's decisions and drives people's opinions about things. And so when somebody comes along and says wear a mask or get a vaccine. Well, you're going to have folks who um, just object to that by the very nature of not trusting the, the methods behind any of those claims. You know, since you brought up religion, um, you know, when we when we were hanging out in St. Louis in 2019 uh, for the Drug Policy Alliance's conference uh, reform, you know, I learned a lot about you uh, and, and how you're a cult survivor, which I find, you know, a lot of your life, honestly, I think could come out of a movie. And I think you should write an autobiography. Can you if you want? Can you share a little bit about your time? Uh, I think it was uh, the Children of God that you were a part of. Yeah, I don't mind sharing briefly, you know, just some of the experience there. I, my parents were some of the leadership of the Children of God, and uh, my, you know, both my mom and dad were very close with one of the co-founders of the cult. And, um, you know, early on when I was very young, they were tasked with going around and auditing all the different colonies. Um, in different countries. And then they splintered off and attempted to start their own group. Um, I'm not sure the specifics of why that was. You know, it's hard to tell um, or how much of what they say about it that it can be trusted. But um, I did grow up with a very extreme mentality, you know, very off the grid. Um, my parents thought that the end of days was going to come any moment, and we were always preparing for that. And there was a lot of sexual misconduct going on in the cult, um, got them into hot water with the law to where they had to leave to another country uh, to get away with a lot of that. It was a very extreme and traumatic environment that I grew up in, um, but there was an upside because it inoculated me against a lot of the, um, what I think qualifies as cults or religions within the addiction and recovery community. Uh, that I've seen other folks sort of fall for hook, line, and sinker. So there was a silver lining there. Uh, but yeah, pretty interesting experience. Um, learned a lot from it, though. Well, yeah. Can you give us like an example of that? That's like really interesting. I mean, I, first of all, it's always really annoyed me. The whole structure of Alcoholics Anonymous is very, you know, put your, put your whole situation on a higher power or something like that. Uh, but can you give an example of that? That you that you see commonly in in the rehab community. Yeah, just just main, I guess I would say mainly the idea that you're telling someone they're going to die if they leave the group. Um, you know, sort of using the fear of death to keep folks as part of a group to me is an early indicator that you're dealing with um, 
you know, an orthodoxy that's that's so powerful. Um, and and there's a unifying factor there, especially for people who use drugs, because we're already marginalized, we're already cut out of general society. And so when you have a group of folks who step in and say, hey, look, we're going to accept you and love bomb you and all these things and welcome you into the group, there's a tremendous amount of selective pressure to, to conform to that. And when you're being told by even the courts um, and treatment providers that this is the only way for you to make anything of your life or to improve your lot, uh, there's just, you know, it's hard to go in any other direction, um, frankly. And, and so what I see these groups really standing in is that they're standing in the gap of the general need for community and acceptance for people who use drugs and the sense of isolation, um, the sense of rejectedness that probably many other marginalized groups have experienced throughout American history. And so they're standing in that gap and offering a solution to that. And um, it's somewhat predatory, the belief system that comes in when a person's in their weakest moment. And maybe this is a good second to kind of the goings on of, of the users union. I, I, I don't know if a lot of our listeners know what, what those are and how they work and why someone who uses drugs would want to join a, 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 a users union. Um, you know, it's like there's that rejectedness, that marginalization that a lot of us have experienced. And then here's comes a union there, there there's, you know, literal solidarity there. There's people kind of trying to build a community to expand their rights as a citizen in this country. Um, so yeah, can you talk a bit about, uh, yeah, the, the union and, and what you do there and, and what it's all about. This is something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, the folks that I work with on the Urban Survivors Leadership Team, you know, Louise Vincent, Mark Kinsley, Katie Simon, you know, Robert Suarez, um, all these people that don't mind me naming them, Shiloh Jauma, um, Dino Ortiz, these folks are like my family. Um, and I've always sort of had to develop a family. I had a street family as a kid, you know, because I grew up, once I escaped the cult environment, I grew up on the streets of California and always found folks um, who use drugs to, to just be generally uh, more trustworthy, as counterintuitive as that sounds. And um, so this is a family of folks, really, and we have an equilateral leadership structure. There's not, um, you know, an executive director per se that makes all this, you know, the sort of determinations for the organization. It's very democratically run. Um, and it is relatively new as a concept in the United States, you know, over the last 10 years, these things have developed, but much more well-established in a lot of European countries, the idea that people who use drugs can come together and fight for their own rights. I think it's particularly relevant to American culture because if you look at the history of rights revolutions here, they have always been started and waged by the people who are most directly impacted. They've never come from positions of power. And um, so, you know, much similar to those rights revolutions, we are sort of standing on the backs of those reforms and saying in the same way, we who use drugs deserve those rights. We deserve to be treated like any other American. And 
providing a space for people to become involved with a cause like that has therapeutic value um, for many, probably many of the things that we're calling a disorder. Um, as a result of my participation with the union, I've come to see the definition of disorder in a much different way. Um, you know, people are widely diagnosed with substance use disorders, and I've come to see that as sort of a bit of a gaslight, you know, because you create cultural conditions that are not conducive to social functioning, and then you turn around and call lack of social functioning a disorder. So you create social conditions to where people who use drugs cannot function socially, and you define a disorder purely on the basis of social functioning. There's a circular reasoning involved there that, um, you know, to where prohibitionists and folks who are uh, jingoistic or discriminatory or have hatred towards people for what they put in their bodies have a leg to stand on. And providing a place for people to be open about who they are and honest about who they are and create a climate of safety and support is invaluable for all human beings. And I've been honored and, and really just um, so lucky to be able to fall into this group and be able to participate in the initiatives that we've supported over the last year. Um, <clears throat> we had a sign-on letter that was signed by over 140 organizations in support of regulatory reforms to methadone and buprenorphine delivery in light of COVID. Um, we've had you know, just these actions that have brought folks together. We've had hundreds of people on the national calls. I think COVID really had this uh, effect on people who use drugs to where we had to decide, look, are we going to shrivel up by ourselves and die of, of poisoning or are we going to organize via the internet? And having the opportunity to meet remotely has just been a huge boon to a drug user organizing. Um, I was able to participate in the formation of a Pan-American network of drug user activists between some folks in Canada with, um, with, with the, um, you know, uh, Vancouver Area Network of Drug User Activists, and um, you know a number of different organizations there, and and then folks in the United States with the Urban Survivors Union, um, and then all the way down into Central and South America. Um, you know, having the ability to join hands across international lines and across um, these boundaries, they're imaginary, real, really boundaries but really across this demographic that has driven the war on drugs, across this demographic that has been the epicenter of the war on drugs um, has been incredibly fulfilling. It has changed me as a person to be able to sit in meetings and be open about who I am and what I do and not fear um, losing that. Um, and I think a lot of people lie about their drug use for good reason um, because they're afraid of losing social connection and they're afraid of losing all the things that we fundamentally crave as human beings. And so providing an answer to that and a solution to that sense of fear and that sense of avoidance, I think is invaluable, not only to um, fighting for drug user rights, but to fighting stigma. I think that anyone who claims to care about stigma needs to support these types of initiatives. We can't only hear from people about drugs who no longer use drugs. Um, and that's the way things have been for a very long time. You know, a person stands up and says, I'm in long-term recovery, therefore I'm the authority on drugs. Um, and, and, and so that is pretty absurd, really in scientific uh, terms to be measuring something so indirectly. Uh, so, you know, this is really an answer to a lot of the problems that we've faced as a culture and as a society. And I've just been so lucky to be part of it. Wow, yeah. We did an episode on drug user unions uh, back on episode 18. 
uh, where we spoke to uh, Jess Tilly and Albie Park. So if people want to check that out and learn more about drug user unions, it's a really good episode. You know, I'm not a part of a drug user union, but like from the people I've talked to, it's such an amazing community. And I feel like it's honestly quite brave uh, to stand up and say, I use drugs and I'm not ashamed of it. And, you know, we've done talked to lots of people on this show about that topic. Uh, most recently, Dr. Carl Hart. Um, and it takes a lot of courage to do that. Like you risk losing all those social connections you have, like you mentioned. Um, and especially in some place like Texas, like it, it almost seems like maybe drawing a target on your back to be like, you know, standing up for your rights like that, like maybe the police would harass you more, you'd be surveilled by the government. I mean, that kind of stuff happens. Isn't it a little bit ironic also that like, like you're saying in Texas, there's this uh, small government, don't tread on me type of stance and attitude, right? And like, what bigger intrusion is there than the government controlling your body and, you know, what drugs you can put in it and even controlling, yeah, which neurotransmitters inside your own brain you're allowed to activate right so like that level of control like you know i can just see like the 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 kind of iron fist of the government you know trying to lock our brains in this cage and keep us drug free you know like that's the dystopia in, in my imagination that everyone should be against whether you're a, a liberal in california or on the right in texas it's like you know, come on, like, this is, this is, you know, one-on-one stuff here, like, don't let people control your body. Oh, there's a fundamental contradiction between saying that the government ought to be small and allow individualism to shine through and end this idea that drugs should be banned or that we should punish people for what they put in their body. There's a fundamental contradiction there that I think if you can point out sufficiently for someone they'll be willing to at least revise their position to be less confident. I think that's the reason why we see libertarians taking a lot of the stance that they do as regarding drugs. Um, by the way, when you mentioned Carl Hart, I, I do want to say he's one of the most influential scientists in my life. Um, you know, I've had a lot of mistaken ideas about drugs and, and just his willingness to, to point out that he's been mistaken and revised his position in light of the evidence has been very inspiring, I think, for a lot of us. Um, you know, just this idea that we could have been wrong for so long about something, I think is a, it's a tremendous hurdle to overcome for so many. Um, a lot of what I think we are seeing in terms of ideas about drugs and their illegality and stigma against people who use them is just lingering conditioning over the decades that we've been trained to believe that these things are evil. Um, I compare it much to religious indoctrination and just draw parallels to my own past growing up in, in a cult mentality. And, and what does it take to overthrow that? What does it take to issue um, the, the mistaken ideas about things that don't agree with the evidence? Um, you know, I may have strayed from your original question, Zach, but I, I just, that triggered some thoughts in me. Yeah, no, don't worry about it. I think, and yeah, this is all very much in our wheelhouse. And I think, and I, I think that's important to acknowledge that we're always evolving on this topic, right? Like the ideas I believed in when I was 21 might not really serve me right now being 31, you know, like changing and evolving and growing is, is part of 
I think why we wanted to do this show to begin with, to have these kinds of conversations and to challenge assumptions and to challenge our own ideas and to also put out voices in the media who otherwise wouldn't, you know, have a platform. And it's like, you know, I've personally seen people die or I've personally have had friends die from overdoses and whether it's heroin or fentanyl or whatever. And like, of course, the the kind of knee jerk response to that is like, it's the drug's fault. It's the drug's fault. Or other people will blame the person. Oh, this person, you know, shouldn't have done this. Or why were they being so stupid? And and there's these, I think, traps that are very human to fall into. And I think challenging those and being like, you know, maybe it's not the drug. Maybe it's not the person. Like maybe there, there, there's so much more going on here. And I think, uh, yeah, Har- Carl Hart is doing a great job. I think breaking that down and, and so are you and, and, and the users union. And I think for people listening, like if you're not fully on board with, with, you know, these seemingly radical ideas right now, like that's okay. Like you are where you are and like harm reduction is all about meeting people where they are, you know? And I, and I think like no one's born with all this knowledge of, and no one, has the the right stances right it's all like we're just trying to figure out like what the best stance is and what the best thinking is and and just knowing that the stakes are actually really high here because people are dying and that we do need to do something different yeah that's to me one of the beauties of science is the nature of being an open book and the dialectic that forms around the idea that um concepts should survive on the basis of their merit rather than our ability to control information. And so that's scary at first. Uh, it, I think that in general, as you say, it's a, it's a very human tendency when we don't know how to tackle a problem to turn to superstition. And I do believe that the demon drug myth, if we were to call it that, is a superstition as an avoidance of addressing the societal causes that are so strongly correlated with what we're calling a disorder, things like lack of opportunity, employment, um, poverty, all of these things that are much harder to address than reaching for uh, you know, the reification of a drug or making an an- inanimate object into this demon that's out to get us. Um, and, and so, yes, it is very human to be biased and it's very human to, to reach for these immediate quick fixes and it's okay um, again, I am fully willing to revise my position yet again in light of the evidence. And I think that if we can commit ourselves to the evidence that we're going to improve humanity overall. Damn. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I've talked to, you know, lots of scientists and the best ones are always the ones when I'm interviewing them about something. They're like, well, this is just what the data says. That's not what I believe. Like, you know, they, they don't they don't have like such a strong attachment to some kind of way of thinking they're always willing to be flexible based on new information and that is i think a philosophy anybody whether they like science or consider themselves a scientist or not like can apply to their lives and it does you know fit into the whole drug paradigm as well um you know you mentioned uh uh as part of the urban survivors union um these other people that uh, Dina Ortiz and Caddy Simon, uh, you, you basically wrote this article recently for Filter on um, 
why Biden needs to end the buprenorphine X waiver. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? What is the X waiver and why should Biden get rid of that? Absolutely. Um, this is a sentiment that has been brewing for quite some time. So it's it's not just a you know a recent development. What was recent was the former presidential administration and their health department saying we're going to do away with this while they were on the way out. And then the Biden administration sort of reversing that ruling. It's a bit confusing, actually, for a lot of folks that I work with being told on one hand, all of a sudden the waiver is no longer needed. And then a few days later, yes, it is. Um, you know, you can imagine the type of discussions that that sparked. And actually, a lot of constructive dialogue has taken place. But in the context of drug user organizing, the X waiver is generally seen as yet another barrier. Um, you know, these are folks who experience constant sideway glances just because they're seeking treatment. Um, you know, constant sort of denigration of their right to quality health care. And, and so when you create this additional barrier that only makes less providers willing to prescribe, as the evidence shows, that only decreases the bandwidth for delivery of this medication that has very low street value, very little recreational value, as previous episodes of the show have, have shown, um, you know, what that communicates to, to people who are struggling with this issue is that we don't care about what you put in your body and what kind of health care you have access to. Now, pro proponents of the waiver would argue the opposite, which is that, well, people who are opposing this must not care about what type of education the doctors that, that treat them have. And on the one hand, I would, I would definitely argue against that by saying that, um, you know, we trust doctors to perform open heart surgery. Why would we not trust them to prescribe a medication that's relatively safe, um, that the likelihood of poisoning with is incredibly low and that has very low recreational value? Um, and then on the other hand, I would say that the X waiver was very seldom about education and more often about diversion. Um, it was more about this idea that, you know, if we allow all doctors to prescribe this medication, which by the way is treating the leading cause of death for Americans under 50, uh, that the pills are going to wind up all over the street and we're going to have this huge problem. Um, that just simply isn't supported by the data. Um, and even if diversion were a problem with buprenorphine, that's an alternative to a, us having the problem of fentanyl. Um, it decreases the demand for substances that are contaminated and more likely to kill individuals. So I wrote the piece um, because I care about utilitarianism. I care about the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And I do believe that to be dysregulating this medication to the point where it is accessible to a lot of folks who are in danger of dying otherwise. <clears throat> so there will be some debate and open dissent about that position. But uh, in my view, uh, the most elevated ought to be the voices of people who are the most directly impacted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this is a good place to wrap up. You know, I kind of want to talk to you one last question, unless Zach has anything else to add is, you know, what, what do you see coming next for you? Uh, what's going, what's in the future for you, the Urban Survivors Union, and everyone involved in that? There are a lot of innovations that have come about as a result of COVID. Um, again, in the middle, as I think it was Einstein said, in the middle of uh, difficulty lies opportunity. And I think we have been presented with a number of opportunities as a result of these adversities. Um, you know, the, the, for the first time in history, uh, take homes of, of methadone have been allowed in 14 to 28 day stints. Um, there's been allowance of telehealth inductions for buprenorphine. 
Um, you know, we, we have had a test bed, if you want to call it, so to speak, to, to take a look at what the effect of these regulations has been, you know, have societies crumbled because people had two weeks worth of medication um, all of a sudden and weren't required to come to the clinic every day. And then was COVID spread more widely when we forced people to come into the clinic on a daily basis to receive their medications? Um, so there's been an opportunity to really rethink some regulations that were not formulated on the basis of evidence. Um, and that, you know, in my view, were some, some of the same drug war mentality um, that has informed a lot of our decisions about substances in the past. And there have been technological innovations such as telehealth that have made treatment much more available to people who desire it. Um, there's been a conversation opened up about um, the drug markets in general and the effect that squeezes on the drug market have. I do think that unfortunately COVID has applied selective pressures for fentanyl and its analogs um, because of the way that the general market has been squeezed. And that's going to force us to really have to adapt in a lot of different ways. So in the future, I see um, drug organizing, drug user organizing becoming only more prevalent um, with the utilization of the internet and the way we've all sort of been forced into our computers. Um, and I see technological advancements coming down the line to make methadone and buprenorphine more available, which by the way, they're the closest thing that we can get to safe supply in the absence of decriminalization and legalization. Um, and I see an opportunity and a space for a conversation around safe consumption and some of the more evidence-based um, practices that other countries have found useful. Um, and hopefully there will be some cracks and fissures in our governmental attitude toward these things and we can make some progress, hopefully. Fingers crossed we don't have another power outage. Yeah, or another pandemic. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, it's, I mean, like, if the, if COVID and the blackouts and future climate disasters aren't a sign that, you know, methadone needs to be prescribed and dispensed by a pharmacy, like every other drug, like, I don't know what will, right? It's just like, you know, forcing people to brave a storm or go out in a pandemic to get their medicine this way is totally crazy and and yeah like i think you're right there has been a lot of all these crises are producing a lot of uh interesting solutions and it's very regional you know like like we're like we're all you know sort of watching oregon and what's happening with the decrim there and all the psychedelic stuff like like there, there's so many there's so much fluidity and volatility happening that, you know, it, it's hard for me trying to cover this stuff to keep track of it and, and understand it all and follow it. But that's like a good thing, right? You know, I, I think my default kind of reflex is to think that everything is static. We're stuck in a stalemate. There's just paralysis and stasis everywhere that we're just doomed to, you know, be, be trapped in, in these really terrible policies driven by bad ideas. But yeah, I, I think I do feel hopeful. I mean, I think as we're recording this right now, like a $1.9 trillion relief package was just passed. Like, and like, I, like that's just unfathomable to me. That's so much money and that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago, you know? So like, 
trying to take the the long view, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I, I feel like things are maybe it's just that things are so bad that they can only get better from here. But I don't know. Something you mentioned just reminded me of something else I wanted to talk to you about. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, people are like, well, this is going to dry up the drug supply and nothing's going to be smuggled across the border anymore because of COVID. And of course, that didn't happen. Uh, it just did seem to like, from what I can tell, force, uh, you know, these cartels to focus more on, on synthetics like fentanyl. Uh, and it's really unfortunate, but, uh, yeah, I don't know what, what else you could tell us really about, you know, border crossings and that kind of thing. Um, and, and how, like, like how absurd it was to think that, oh, people aren't going to be able to get drugs anymore because of COVID. At, at first it seemed like that, I think, like people kind of figuring things out, but dr drug dealers, people that deal drugs, like they're very innovative. They find ways. Yeah, we have to remember that we're talking about the largest and most robust market for anything in the world. I mean, honestly, um, you know, if, if we're honest about it, um, more money changes hands regarding illicit drugs than any other commodity. And so how is that going to be turned upside down by anything? Um, and it has adapted. I think this whole situation has demonstrated the market resiliency of, of the illicit drug trade and its adaptability as well. Um, and that's something that we fundamentally have to accept if we want to think sensibly about these things. Uh, you know, this naive idea that we're going to have any level of control over the resiliency of such a important market, in my view, um, you know, we're talking about, as Carl Hart might say, the health and happiness of people. Um, and that is not something that a pandemic can take away. Um, it's not something that a power outage can take away. And I do believe that what we have seen is market resiliency. Um, unfortunately, in an unregulated market, adaptations often are much more dangerous. Um, mutations almost is what I would more likely call them because who knows what's going to happen when a mutation takes place. It could be uh, to the benefit of the consumer or it could be to their detriment. And that's why I think it's all the more high time to to call for decrim um, and regulation of, of all of these things uh, because they're not going anywhere and they'll only adapt to whatever we throw at them. Where can people find you? On Twitter, you're uh, at Science Not Theism. Yeah, Science No Theism, you know, I may change the, the name there um, if it stops upsetting people. But, but um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, or, you know, reach out to me by name, Marin Ferguson on Facebook. Um, you know, above all, listen to Narcotica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, definitely pleased to be back. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. I think, uh, so I kind of forgot how we met, but I think it was through, uh, Zach Rhodes. Is that correct? Like you, you do p work with his podcast as well. Yeah. It, you know, kind of helped to help to get the social exchange going there for a while and, um, still kind of loosely working alongside him on some stuff. Um, what I want to see more actually is platforming people who are out as drug users. Um, and I would love to contribute to anything around storytelling or, you know, elevating those voices if we can in the future. Yeah. Yeah. We're all for that. Thanks so much for coming on. It was really great. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. If you're listening to these credits, thanks for that as well. This is where we tell you how to find out more, how you can support Narcotica and the wonderful people who make this show possible. 
Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer of this episode was Aaron Ferguson. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and additional music is by Bill Vortex. You can find us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. We're on all the socials as well. YouTube, SoundCloud, Friendster, Club Penguin, whatever. Narcotica is an ad-free program, and we want to keep it that way. So thank you so much to our patrons who help keep this program free from corporate influence. We couldn't do it without you. If you like the program, you can join dozens of drug nerds on our Patreon. Supporters can request free stickers or a shout-out on the show, and we're working on other perks as well. Thanks for making this program possible, everyone. Patreon isn't for you, and no judgment. You can help us get the word out. Give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, name it. Tell all your friends about us and spread the word at your local needle exchange. That's all for now. Take care.